Thank you to our music team. The children can be dismissed at this time for the nursery or children's ministry. And let me ask you, please, to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 10. We've been working our way through the gospel according to Mark. We've been in this middle section, which focuses specifically on discipleship and even Last week, looked at what is the key verse of the gospel according to Mark, Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now we look at the story of a man named Bartimaeus who was blind, but who could see more clearly than anybody else in that crowd that day. Please follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi or Rabboni, Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, what a glorious display of your mercy. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Let this not just be words that we hear, but let it be words that we see with our hearts. Let us recognize you for who you are. We pray especially for those who have not ever seen your mercy, Lord, who do not yet know you, whose eyes you have not yet opened. We ask you, We ask you just as Bartimaeus asked, Lord, let them recover their sight. We pray also, Lord, for those of us whose eyes you have opened. We confess how easy it is to close our eyes, to let our eyes be dim. But Lord, give us your grace now to open our eyes so that we would see even more your beauty and your mercy. Let us see even more that you're never too busy for us when we cry out to you. We believe what you say, Lord. The man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It was December 20th, 1943, And 2nd Lieutenant Charlie Brown, yes, that was his name, 
Second Lieutenant Charlie Brown was flying his B-17 bomber along with his crew in a formation in order to attack a German aircraft production facility during World War II. This particular facility was well guarded, having over 250 flak cannons or anti-aircraft guns that would certainly defend it from any air attack like Lieutenant Brown and his squadron were attempting to fly. It was clear to every pilot in that entire formation this was a seriously dangerous mission. Already as they approached their target, three planes had to turn back because of mechanical failures, and so Lieutenant Brown's plane assumed the very lead position in the formation. As they prepared themselves to begin to make their descent onto the target and to drop their bombs before they could do so, Lieutenant Brown's aircraft began to receive that flat gun fire. And it was badly damaged, so badly damaged that it lost one engine immediately and sustained serious damage to a second of its four engines. It was slowed down so much so that the other squadron, the rest of the squadron, had to fly ahead while Lieutenant Brown's plane remained behind because it couldn't be up to full power. And so soon the enemy dispatched their fighter pilots and because the plane was flying so slowly, they were easily caught by enemy fighter jets or fighter planes. They didn't have jets yet. Enemy fighter planes. And the fighter planes themselves inflicted serious damage on this plane, yet somehow, by a miracle of God's grace, it stayed up in the air and slowly flew its way to what they hoped was safe territory, although one of the pieces, important pieces of the airplane that was damaged was its compass. So as they putted along through the air, It was certainly thought by the Germans that this plane was going to crash at some point, but it was seen by another enemy airfield, and soon a man named named Franz Stigler, who had already shot down 27 American planes, took flight in his own plane to dispatch this last enemy plane. As Stigler grew closer and closer to the plane before he could even pull the trigger to unload his 50 caliber machine guns, he saw something that stopped him. He saw, first of all, the damage that the plane had inflicted, and he could even see inside of the plane because of the holes that were ripped in it from the enemy flat gun. He could see inside of the plane those American airmen fighting for everything they had, fighting with everything they had in order to stay alive. He could tell that the plane was severely damaged. He could tell that at least some of the crew, one of them at this point was dead. And many of them, in fact, all of them were seriously injured and they were just frantically trying to make it back home. And so instead of dispatch and finish off this enemy to him, American plane, Franz Stigler decided that he would help this American plane. Moved with mercy at the hopeless and helpless situation of the Americans trapped inside of this B-17 that they thought was going to perhaps be their coffin. Instead of shooting this plane down, initially Franz Stigler tried to motion to the plane to follow him, 
where he was trying to escort them into Swedish airspace where they would receive medical care and all the treatment that they needed. But as you can imagine, Lieutenant Brown and the rest of his crew thought there was no way this German was not going to shoot them down. So instead of trying to attempt to steer them towards safe airspace, Franz Stigler instead assumed a position on their wing so that no anti-aircraft cannon would be fired at this American enemy. He flew right there next to them all the way to the North Sea where he peeled back to go back to his airspace and having done so just before he saluted the Americans. They then flew across the North Sea, made it to a British airfield, landed, and everyone except the one who died instantly from, aircraft, uh, from anti-aircraft fire lived through that torturous day. That was in 1943. In 1990, Charlie Brown and Franz Stigler finally got to meet one another. Charlie Brown had always wondered who it was. Who was that merciful German who was a human being inside of that cockpit, looking upon other human beings and seeing them suffer, and rather than taking them out, instead decided to show them mercy. And so he posted a letter in, in uh, an airman's uh, circulation. And that letter was answered by Franz Stigler, who was at that time living in Canada. The two met in 1990, and they remained close friends until 2008 when both of them died just months apart from one another. I like that story. I like that story for a number of reasons. First of all, I'm a sucker for World War II history. They really were the greatest generation. But I like it even more because I'm a sucker for stories of mercy. That story moves everyone who hears it because the reality is everyone is a sucker for mercy. Everyone loves to see mercy displayed. Everyone loves to see someone who deserved something bad and yet the person who could give them that bad thing instead withheld the bad and gave them good instead. Mercy is a universal language that is appreciated by all because it is kindness shown to someone who does not deserve it. And the reality is every single one of us has been in a position at some point in our lives when we did not deserve kindness and yet someone showed it to us. Why did Franz Stigler not shoot down that American B-17 that day and instead of having 27 confirmed kills, having 28? He was already a highly decorated fighter pilot. It was because when he looked on that plane and he could see through the holes torn in it, helpless and hopeless human beings who were just doing their best to survive. He was moved to mercy. Dear friends, this mercy is exactly what God sees 
when he looks upon humanity. Mercy is what God extends. Mercy is not just what God does, but mercy is a part of who God is. When God looks on a helpless and hopeless people whom he has made, he stands ready to give his mercy whenever someone would cry out to him for it. Listen to these explanations of salvation that we have throughout the scriptures. I read to you earlier, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter three, verses four to five, he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, having explained that we're dead in our sins, he says, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But you see, this mercy of God is not something that is only seen in the New Testament. Oh, it's most clearly seen in Jesus. But the truth is, it's not as though the Old Testament showed a a grumpy God who loved to destroy people until the good God named Jesus showed up and now his mercy was finally extended. Oh, no. Just as God told Moses, when Moses asked to see his glory, in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, he says, The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. What does God explain? How does God explain himself, first of all, when he reveals his glory to Moses? He does not say a God full of wrath, though he is. But he says a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger, even with Sodom and Gomorrah, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I think that we have too often a very lopsided view of God. We focus far more on the second half of God's revelation of his glory that he will by no means clear the guilty. And in our own attempts to elevate ourselves above the unrighteousness of everyone else, we're quick to go to, God's going to get you, you sinner. But that's not where Jesus was quick to go to. 
That's not where God himself is quick to go to. He's quick to go to his mercy. And what's the difference then between those who receive the saving mercy of God and those from whom he withholds his saving mercy? The difference is that one group cries out to him for his mercy and the other group has better things to do like the rich young ruler. You see, God is merciful. That's who he is. And he stands ready to forgive anyone who calls upon him. What does the scripture say? Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not might be saved, not probably will be saved, but shall be saved. If you call upon the name of the Lord, even now, you will be saved. We can get theologically nitpicky sometimes and say, well, but it's all, it has to be a genuine call. And of course that's true. Do you think God doesn't know that? But the reality is a true call upon the Lord is a reflection of faith in the Lord. Oh, it might not be pure faith. You'll never have that. But it's the kind of faith that Jesus takes. So as we look at our passage this morning then, what we see on full display is the mercy of God. A mercy that is laser focused now onto humanity through one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ the mediator between God and man, the one who became man so that he could be a sympathetic high priest so that he could not only offer sacrifice for his, the sins of his people, but also continually intercede for his people and in addition, understand everything that his people go through. Because that's what a high priest must do. This is why the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus then as a sympathetic high priest who was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. Friend, I don't know what you're going through, what you've been going through, what you might go through. But I can tell you with 100% confidence, I won't be able to relate to all of it. But I can tell you with 110% confidence that Jesus will. And that's who you want to be able to relate with anyways. The only one who will never turn you away, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go into our passage then and let's see a man who needed mercy and a king who gives his mercy. Follow along with me then as we walk through this particular passage, this last healing in the gospel account of Mark before Jesus goes into Jerusalem. Next week in chapter 11, we'll look at the triumphal entry when Jesus is greeted by hosannas because people recognize what Bartimaeus recognized, that he is the son of David. Although just as we have already seen, they are just as blurry-eyed as the disciples and just as blind as the Pharisees. While they look for a triumphal king who will stomp the head of his enemies, this king first comes to give mercy. 
So let's look at this in two parts then. First of all, a man who needed mercy, verses 46 to 48. Mark tells us as he continues the story of Jesus, as he continues to explain their travels from the northern territory of Galilee down into Jerusalem to make the ascent up to the 35,000 foot climb from the city of Jericho to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate, to observe the day of Passover so that Jesus himself could be the Passover lamb. You remember from last week, Jesus is determined. He set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. So much so that the disciples were amazed and everybody else who followed along was fearful. They knew it was about to go down in Jerusalem. They just didn't know what was about to go down in Jerusalem. And so in verse 46, they come to Jericho. And as they were leaving Jericho, Mark tells us who was there. Jesus with his disciples and a great crowd. And then for the only time in Mark's gospel, he names the name of the person who is healed. He's given other names, but never the name of the person who was healed directly. He's given relatives' names, such as Jairus, whose daughter was raised from the dead. But now he names the name of this man. Perhaps because the Christians to whom Mark originally wrote knew this man. I think also perhaps because Jesus has been teaching them about discipleship. And he's been teaching them about the kingdom of God. And he's been teaching them that they cannot and should not value things and people the way that the world values things and people. And so this man who would have been last among everyone else gets named in the gospels. So it's Jesus and his disciples and a great crowd probably heading up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But by this time in Mark's gospel, you know that everywhere Jesus grows, a great crowd follows along. And then he says Bartimaeus was there. And he describes who Bartimaeus was. He calls him a blind beggar. And in those days, if you were blind then of course you were a beggar. Unless you had family and friends who cared enough about you and who had the financial means to support you, there was no social welfare system. There was no laws to ensure that those with disabilities were taken care of. It was dog eat dog. If you were blind, you of course couldn't work. You couldn't even make it to where you were supposed to do any work. So the blind were beggars. That was their lot in life. This particular beggar named Bartimaeus, who was the son of Timaeus, which is actually what his name means, Bar meaning son of, Timaeus being his father's name, he was sitting by the roadside. Bartimaeus knew what time of year it was. The Passover was coming. And so he knew that all the Jews coming from the northern territory would pass through the beautiful city of Jericho in order to make their last stop just before they climbed the 3,500 foot climb up to the city of Jerusalem where they would sing the Psalms of Ascent to one another. And so this was the best place for a beggar to be positioned because where would the travelers walk on? The road. 
and they would walk on the road from Jericho, making that last climb, so that your best chance of getting any food or any money would be to sit by the roadside. And so apparently the practice was they would take off their cloak and they would lay it on the roadside next to them and their cloak would be the thing that people would put alms into, money or bread or food like that, things like that for them to eat. Kind of like, you know, when you see someone playing their guitar on the street and they lay out their guitar case and you toss the change or whatever it is inside their guitar case. Just like that. Jews were, uh, it it was a particular practice for Jews to give what they called alms, to give to the poor. And so he knew that with with the Passover coming, everyone was excited, everyone was thinking about God rightly, and so they they would be more apt to give. And so he positioned himself there in this best spot right on the roadside, and as he did so, he hears a commotion. Verse 47 says, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out. Somehow, probably because everyone was talking, he could hear something. He could hear a great crowd coming. You know what it's like when a crowd comes. People are talking. It gets louder. He could probably smell the dust that was being kicked up by their footsteps He knew something was going on and he could no doubt hear the people talking about all the things that Jesus had been doing, even the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, the son of man, was on his way to Jerusalem. And so when he heard who it was that was coming, this man named Jesus who was from Nazareth, he began to cry out. And what he cried out was this, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The Greek word order is actually son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus may not have been able to have any kind of physical sight. But his spiritual insight was far more sharp and far more clear than even the disciples of Jesus at this point. He may not have been walking with Jesus. In fact, this was most likely the first ever encounter with Jesus he had ever had. But he had heard the stories. And he knew this was his chance. This was his chance. And so when he cries out to Jesus, and you can just imagine what this would have, had, would have been like. A great crowd, all traveling together. You ever been to the, the fair or an amusement park or something where there's a great crowd? And maybe you see a, a loved one or a friend that you're trying to meet and you see them from a distance and you try to yell out to them and you, they can't really hear you very well because the crowd's around there, there's so much noise. This would have been a shout from the bottom of his lungs. He would have had to speak very loudly. Yes, Jesus knows all things, but Jesus is confined here to the body of a human being. So he has to yell, he has to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what he cries out is one of Matthew's favorite ways of describing Jesus. 
So far in Mark, his favorite way has been to call Jesus the Son of Man, or even as he began the gospel, the Son of God. But now, Bartimaeus calls Jesus the Son of David. Son of David being, in those days, an increasingly common name to refer to the Messiah. Not just that Jesus came from the family line of David, but that Jesus was the one in whom the Davidic covenant culminated. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with King David. And it's referring directly to his son Solomon. But it has to go past Solomon. Listen to what God says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 to 16. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is just after David wants to build God a house. The Lord says, no, David, you've got it wrong. You're not going to build me a house. Your son will do that. But I'm going to build a house out of you. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, Solomon, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, Solomon met the same fate that every other sinner does. He died. So his kingdom couldn't be forever because he's dead. So you see, it refers to Solomon, but it looks past Solomon to someone better, a better son of David. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, referring to Solomon, not Jesus, of course, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. By my steadfast love, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So what does Bartimaeus see in Jesus? He sees that promise. He sees God saying to David, your throne shall be established forever. And he recognizes, no doubt with the Spirit's help, that Jesus is the son of David, the king of the Jews, the king of kings. But notice what else he cries out. He doesn't just identify Jesus, but he cries out to Jesus to have mercy on him. When we think of kings and rulers If you're like me, the very first thing my mind goes to is power and authority, right? Strength. Where does Bartimaeus' mind go to when he recognizes the king of kings? Merciful. Mercy. See, my friends, the good news is that the all-powerful God is the all-merciful God. That his power is guided by his mercy and his goodness. That those things go together and they influence one another and his mercy shapes his power. His mercy informs his strength so that when God exerts his strength upon 
a human being who cries out to him, just like Bartimaeus did, it's extended to them in powerful mercy to deliver them. That's how it's always been. That's how it's always been. Think of the prostitute in the old city of Jericho where Joshua fought the battle and the walls came tumbling down. This isn't the same location. This this new Jericho is slightly south, but it's the same name. The prostitute who should have been destroyed with everyone else in the city of Jericho, yet who asked for mercy because she recognized who the true God was. And God extended that mercy, not just to her, but to her whole household. You see, Jericho is a place of God's power, but it's a place of God's mercy. Why? Because the world is the place of God's power and the place of God's mercy. And so he cries out for God's, for Jesus' mercy. But notice the merciless crowd in verse 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. How mean do you have to be to tell a blind man to shut up? He just wants help, right? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they're rebuking him and telling him to be silent. Knock it off, Bartimaeus. Jesus doesn't have time for you. Does this remind you of anything? It's just like when the disciples rebuked the little children for coming to Jesus, isn't it? You see, at this point, the disciples look a whole lot more like the crowd than they do the faithful. Yet Jesus walks with them even still. There's times in our lives when we look a little bit more like the crowd than we do the faithful, isn't there? Yet Jesus doesn't walk away from you, my friend. He walks with you. And his mercy continues to shape your life and to shape your heart. While this merciless crowd tries to silence Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus wouldn't be silenced. Certainly he heard the people. He just didn't care what they had to say. He was not going to be deterred from getting what he most desperately needed, the mercy of God found in Jesus. And so the sentence there in verse 48 continues, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. It was as if the rebuke of the crowd was fuel on the fire of Bartimaeus' desperation. Bartimaeus said, oh no, I'm not stopping. I need Jesus. And I don't care what you people say. So we meet a man who needed mercy. You've already noticed this because we read the passage What was it that Bartimaeus displayed? It was certainly desperation. It was certainly helplessness. It was certainly hopelessness. But what is it that Jesus sees inside of Bartimaeus? 
It's his faith. It's your faith that's made you well, Bartimaeus. So when Bartimaeus cries out to Jesus, what he does is he recognizes by faith the identity of Jesus. He's the Messiah. He recognizes the compassion and the mercy of Jesus. Have mercy on me. And he recognizes his own need for that very thing. And he will not be detoured by the crowd. He's determined. His faith has caused him to reject the world, to not listen to the rebukes of others, but to instead say, I've got to get to Jesus. So let me ask you, has that been your response to Jesus? Have you recognized that according to the Bible, you're blind, spiritually blind, dead in your sins outside of Christ? Have you recognized who Jesus is? That he's the son of God, that he's the son of man, that he's the son of David, that he's the savior, the Lord, the king of kings, that he himself is the clear display of the invisible God. And have you also recognized that in that, in who he is, lies a limitless amount of mercy? Mercy that is available for anyone who asks him for it. And in realizing that, have you cried out to him for it? Because if you have, then not only have you received it in the past, but my friend, you never stop receiving it. Jesus certainly has ascended to the right hand of his father where he sits on the throne and yet stands up at times when his people are persecuted like he did for Stephen. But nothing has changed about the heart of Jesus. It's not as though Jesus in his flesh took on some ultra emotional experience that he lost after his glorified flesh, after his resurrection. This is who Jesus is forever. He still gives this mercy. So if you need it, the question is not, will he give it? The question is, will you go to him to take it? Will you let nothing detour you from it? Not the crowds who tell you to shut up. Not your own sin. And not Satan who tells you to shut up. Jesus is too busy for you. That thing is too small for Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus is the God of mercy. And he gives it to you, my friend. So we've seen a man who needed mercy and we recognize the reality is we all need mercy. Let's then look at the king who gives mercy. Not just gave mercy, but who gives mercy. The one whose heart overflows with mercy to those who call upon him. Verses 49 to 52, we meet this king of mercy. Notice verse 49. Having cried out to the son of David for mercy, verse 49 says, 
And Jesus stopped. Jesus stops for those who cry out to him for his mercy. Notice the way that Jesus was determined to get to Jerusalem from our last passage. He had set his face like flint. He was determined that he was going to get to Jerusalem, so much so that who led the, led the pack? Jesus did. Nothing was going to stop Jesus from getting to Jerusalem except for someone who cried out for mercy. My friend, that very same thing still stops Jesus. When you cry out to mercy, Jesus hears you. He sees you and he answers you. I don't know what it will look like exactly, but I know it will come. Jesus stops and then he says, call him. Now notice, who is Jesus talking to when he says to call him? He's talking to the very same people that told Bartimaeus to shut up. And I notice how fickle they are. All of a sudden, Jesus likes this guy. Oh, well, we better like him too. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Now, it doesn't say, but I think knowing the heart of the Savior and even knowing sometimes the tactics that the Savior takes, Jesus could have easily told Bartimaeus to come to him, couldn't he? I mean, if Bartimaeus is yelling loud enough for Jesus to hear, certainly Jesus could have answered him, come here. Get up and come here. But Jesus doesn't talk directly to Bartimaeus. He talks to the fickle crowd, the merciless crowd. And he says, no, you tell him to come here. You very same people who are just telling him to shut up, you, now you tell him to come here to me. I hope that was a lesson that stuck with the crowd and I think that's a lesson that will stick with us. Because the reality is sometimes we can reflect the crowd, can't we? Jesus doesn't have time for those types of people. I mean, they just keep going back to their sin over and over. They're a dog returning to their vomit. I'm done wasting my time with those people. So Jesus tells the crowd who just told Bartimaeus to shut up to call Bartimaeus to himself. They call them, they tell him to take heart or to be encouraged. They tell him to get up, he's calling you. And then verse 50 says, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Mark doesn't tell us exactly why he threw off his cloak, but think about the context that we're in right now. Back in chapter eight, Jesus has already said, in order to follow him, you've got to lay down your life and take up your cross and follow him. And then, recently, Jesus has met a rich young ruler who submitted himself down in the dust before Jesus and asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And when Jesus told him, you've got to give up everything you love, he decided it wasn't worth it, and he walked away from Jesus. His hands were too full to put anything down in order to take up Jesus. But now, this blind man, who probably only owned a cloak, sets it down, says, I don't care about that cloak, I'm going to Jesus. That's discipleship. I don't care about what I own. 
It belongs to Jesus. The only thing I have is this cross on my back. So he throws off his cloak and he gets up, he springs up, he comes to Jesus. Mark doesn't tell us if he had help getting to Jesus. I kind of think he didn't have help. I happen to know blind people can navigate. Our daughter daughter does it quite well. Bartimaeus had been blind for a very long time, if not his whole life at this point. He could navigate. He knew where he was going. But I think his desperation was so strong inside of him. He knew where the voice was coming from. And perhaps they pointed him. Maybe they helped him. But he knew where the voice was coming from. I think he ran to Jesus. His other senses being heightened because he couldn't see. I think he ran to Jesus. He came up to him and Jesus asked him a question. What do you want me to do for you? It might seem like a strange question, right? Well, obviously the man's blind. What do you think he wants? But do you remember the last time that Jesus asked this question? He asked the question to James and John. Look back to verse 36. James and John come up to Jesus in verse 35. They ask him, do anything you want for us? Verse 36, Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? Very same question, right? It's no coincidence that Mark includes the very same question just a few verses later. What do you want me to do for you? And when James and John were asked that question, what did they say? Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Notice they asked to sit, right? Which was a position of authority, a position of power. Jesus, put us in the two best seats in the house. Give us position, give us power, give us influence. That's completely consistent with what the disciples have wanted all along, right? What have they been arguing about multiple times already as they've been on the road? Who's the greatest? James and John at this point decided, well, we're going to be the greatest. We're just going to go ask him for it. But what does the blind man ask Jesus for? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, or more literally, Rabboni, let me recover my sight. James and John wanted power. Bartimaeus just wanted to be restored. And isn't that the mark of a true Christian? Lord, I don't care about this world. Take the world, but give me Jesus. I just want you to restore me. I just want you to make me whole. Do you remember when God saved you? It was like you it was like you were a thousand pounds and floating like a feather all at the same time. Weighed down with the grief and the guilt of your sin and yet the burden relieved because Jesus has taken it. God convicted you so deeply and you just said, Lord, I just need you. I don't even know what to ask for. I just need you. Make me new. Make me whole. Save me. Have mercy on me. 
And he does. But when James and John are asked that very same question by Jesus, they say, Lord, give us a position of power and authority. I don't know why you're here this morning, but I want to ask you a question. What do you want most from Jesus? Right here, right now, if you could ask Jesus for anything, what would you ask him for? That reveals who your God is. Whether it's Jesus, or it's comfort, or security, or position, whatever it might be. The answer to that question says it all. What did Bartimaeus want? He just wanted to see. Verse 52, Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. First, Jesus tells him to go as he did with so many other people. Go your way. And then he says, your faith has made you well. Just as he did with the woman who fell down before him, it's your faith, your faith that's made you well. The woman who touched his cloak, it was her faith that made her well. It's Bartimaeus' faith now that makes him well. Jesus looks through the flesh into your heart and he can see whether or not you have faith. And when he sees that faith, he makes you well. Oh, you may still have a physical ailment that you carry with you on into glory, but when you see him face to face, you'll never wrestle with that again. He makes him well. Immediately he recovers his sight, which, which could mean he recovered it as though he had it once and lost it, but this word recover could also mean that this was the very first time he's been able to see. That really doesn't matter. The point is he can see now. And having been told to go his way, now that he can see, where does Bartimaeus go? Which way does Bartimaeus go? He follows Jesus. What is Mark doing? Mark is saying, this is what disciples do. When Jesus opens their eyes, they follow him. I think Jesus knew what was going to happen, but I just find it so interesting. Jesus tells Bartimaeus, go your way as if he's letting him choose. Bartimaeus, I'm going to heal you because I can see your faith and I'm going to give you the opportunity to go wherever you want. But Bartimaeus, who can now see, but who could see even before he could see, he knows who Jesus is. And he now says to Jesus, Jesus, my way is your way. I'm going with you. Forget my cloak. I've got you. And perhaps Bartimaeus followed Jesus all the way to Jerusalem. And perhaps Bartimaeus saw Jesus on the cross. And perhaps Bartimaeus was even in the upper room praying before the Holy Spirit descends upon them, praying before Jesus busts in the door. Either way, Barnabas followed Jesus. Mark wants us to understand that that really is the simplicity of the Christian life. You see, we so often think of the Christian life as something I have done in the past. I became a Christian when. 
But the reality is, Christianity is every moment of every day. The question is not so much, have you believed in the past? The question is, are you following Jesus? Are you obeying him? Are you believing in him? Are you loving him? Are you begging to him for him to give you mercy so that your heart is now shaped like his heart, more and more merciful? Because that's what a disciple does. That's what Jesus makes out of us. And so without the mercy of the king, Bartimaeus would have been left in his blindness. And guess what, friend? Without the mercy of the king, you and I would be left in our blindness. But this king, being all-powerful, is also entirely merciful. Just like the song says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. May God help us to see Jesus. Let's pray. That is our prayer, O God. Just like the song says, open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. We pray that you would always continually open our eyes, that our eyes would never stop being opened. And we pray that we would never stop following Jesus, but that instead we would be committed and devoted, not even necessarily in our own self-discipline, in our own self-control, but we would just be compelled by the character of Jesus, by who you are, Lord. So that as we see your love for us, our love for you would grow and our self-control and our our self-discipline would then be shaped and informed by our love for you. Oh Lord, make love the main motivator for us so that from that love for you, obedience would flow out of our lives. It's what you're worthy of. It's what you desire. And oh Lord, even though we often fail, it's what we so badly want to give you. So son of David, have mercy on us. Amen.